Now, if you, if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me um, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, this is the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son By her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. 
I will establish, establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household were bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, were bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Amen. We thank God for his word and trust he will continue to speak to us throughout the rest of the service. Well, thank you, Caleb. Um, he can sing, he can play the piano, he can read and pray. And now I'm going to invite him to come and preach in that passage <laughs> that he's just read. Just in case you don't know, uh, Caleb's one of our apprentices here, and uh, we're very glad to have him um, follow in the lines of his brother. And there's another one yet to come, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. Uh, 7 o'clock club, if you're wanting to go to 7 o'clock um, club, I think there's folks ready to look after you, uh, and you can go right now. And those of us who are staying, can I ask you to uh, keep your Bibles open, Genesis 17. And we'll ask God for his help as we look at this fantastic passage of Scripture. Father, we thank you for your word given to us right in front of us, your divine revelation that's supposed to shape the way we think, to shape the way we do life, to shape the way we do church, to shape how we think about just the whole of our existence. So bless us now and give us teachable hearts. And listening ears, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By the time of the events of chapter 17, it's 24 years since the promise of chapter 15. 20, um, 24 years. 13 years have passed since the sin of chapter 16 that we looked at last Sunday Evening, you'll notice at the end of chapter 17, Ishmael is now 13 years old. Time has passed by again. Abram is 99 years old. We read that in verse 1. Sarai is 90. That's recorded in verse 17. Why do we have these long periods of time between these big events and this great story? Well, both of them, it seems, 
had to learn some seriously important lessons. When God says yes, he means yes. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And when God begins something, he finishes it. And those are lessons we need to learn and relearn over and over again. It took Abram and Sarai quite a long time to learn these things. But now, now it seems that Abram and Sarai are ready. As I say, 13 years after the sin of chapter 16. So God appears to Abram and he confirms the eternal covenant again. And he spells out the terms and conditions of the covenant and he reveals the all-important sign. It's a fantastic chapter and extremely important for us as God's people uh, to learn what it all means. Now, it is rather difficult to get a, a structure, but notice three times the phrase, and God said, that's notice that in verse 3, and then in verse 9, and in verse 15. And connected with that, we have also three phrases, at least in the NAV, not so clearly in the ESV or maybe other translations that you're using. As for me, verse 4, as for you, verse 9, and verse 15, as for Sarai. And that's basically going to be our three points um, this evening. The first one, therefore, <laughs> no, it's not working. Can you, yeah. Here's the first one, as for me, verses uh, 4 to 7. Now, we read it just a few moments ago. I don't think we need to, to read them again. But, but here's, here's the point. This is what God is saying uh, to Abram. As for me, this is my covenant with you. Despite Abram's uh, faith, um, he had sinned greatly. He had let God down big time. What happens when somebody does that to you? Over and over again, he, he lets you down or she lets you down. When they sin against you, when they fail, what, what are you tempted to say to them? That's it. No more. I'll go with somebody else. Once bitten, twice shy. Never again will I trust that person because I trusted that person. I give them another chance and, and look what they did. They failed. That's all very human, isn't it? but it's not at all divine. And despite the horrible failure of chapter 16, the message of chapter 17, the message from God is this, my word is my word. I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to allow Abram to break it. I'm going to keep my covenant with this man and with his descendants. It's a beautiful picture, is it not, of the patient grace of a covenant-keeping God. He is the God of ordinary failures like you and me. He, he's the God of sinners like us who fail, who let him down. He will not give up on us. He will not abandon us. He picks up the pieces. He changes us. He's eternally patient with us. And see again in those verses, uh, basically four uh, through to seven, um, the list of his promises, some of them we've looked at many times. Uh, he's always going to keep his promises, of course, but verse 4, verse 8, for instance, the land of Canaan is promised once again. Verse 4, many people from you 
will come lots of offspring. That's mentioned also in verse 5, also in verse 6. But added this time, and we want to just pause for a moment, added this time is a new name. You'll notice that in verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. The father of many, that's what Abraham Abraham means. And uh, he's got this new name. And also notice verse 6, kings will come from you. Now, keep uh, keep a memory of that. We're going to think about that later on because the same promise is made to Sarai. But I think the key thing here is this beautiful grand statement of verse 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. You getting that? I will be your God, I will be their God. We're talking here beautiful personal language in the relationship between God and Abraham and between God and the likes of us who are Abraham's seed. Abraham, Abraham would now know God as my God, not a God, or not even the God, my God. And that's the difference, of course, between knowing God kind of intellectually or maybe traditionally or ritualistically, and of course, experientially. And you know, there, there is a danger that we, we could have folk coming to church week after week, month after month, year after year, and, and they love to hear about God and His grace and the gospel of good news and Jesus, the cross and the resurrection and ascension, and yet not have experienced salvation personally. And you could be in this congregation for generations uh, or for decades, and it, 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 it has not yet dawned on you that you need to experience the new birth Um, in Christ Jesus and his spirit? Is he your God? Can you say, God, you are my God, my God. I know you personally. Or is he a God away there? I will be your God, he says. I will be their God. Incredible promises Land, nations, kings. But the thing that grabbed my attention this week, and I think the thing that should grab our attention this week, is this personal relationship with the God who is the creator and ultimately the returning judge. This is what I promise, God says. And I keep my promises. And this is what I will do. And nobody can stop me. Verse four, as for me, This is my covenant with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. But of course, we have a a second thing. As for you, I don't think the first one is in the ESV, but um, I think the second one is, verse 9. Then God said to Abram, as for you, you must keep my covenant. 
as for me, this is my covenant with you, verse three. Now, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Now, before we get to verse nine, and I want to, you can see there where we're, we're gonna spend a moment or two in verse one and also in verse three. Look at verse one, because again, I think this is part of the stipulations of the covenant. This is what he expects of you and me. This is what he expects of Abraham. This is what he expects of you and me. This is our duty, our personal responsibility, every single one of us and our families and our church that we will indeed walk before God and be blameless. God says, I'm going to give you all these things. But as for you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk before me and be blameless. This is very important because, yes, in chapter 15, only God, the smoking pot and the flaming torch, walked through the carcasses. Abraham didn't walk through that. In other words, God will keep the covenant for himself, and God will keep the covenant for Abraham, and God will keep the covenant for all his descendants, because Abraham and we are not capable of keeping it. And of course, when we continually sin, God pays the price of our sin by having Jesus ripped apart and killed on the cross. However, it would be very wrong of us to think. It would be very wrong of Abraham to think that, oh yeah, God calls and God chooses and God saves. And so all I've got to do is lie back on the sun lounger and sip a cool drink and wait for heaven to come. Is that all I have to do? No. There's a summons to live the real life of God, the life of discipleship. And there he says it so very clearly. I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. These two summonses, these two commands, we should not neglect or brush over. Follow God, basically, is what he's saying here. Walk before me denotes loyalty to a sovereign king. Abraham, I want you to serve me. I want you to serve the king. I want you to serve God. How many people in our land today sang, God save our gracious, it's hard to remember, isn't it? But it's king now, isn't it? How many, how many people sang that across the nation? How many people declared in a sense their loyalty to King Charles III? But what about him, the king? Walk before me as loyal subjects. Be blameless is um, not sinless perfection, of course. Better would be live a life of integrity, live a life of holiness, live a life of wholeness. So a summary for Abraham and for us, follow me and follow my ways. It's the way of the disciple, the life of discipleship. As for you, this is how I want you to live. Verse one, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. But see again, before we get to verse nine, verse three, 
Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. Humble adoration, he fell face down. No proud arrogance. But the biblical mark of humble adoration, face down. Not falling back or pushed back, as we often see on certain channels of certain stations. No catchers required to ease you to the floor. No dancing around widely. But humble adoration down on the ground on your face before God. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. You are almighty. You are my savior. El Shaddai, my very life depends on you. And I acknowledge it. You can take me now. In an instant, you can take me. But I adore you humbly. See, as for you, this is the way I want you to live in covenant relationship with me. So often, too often, is it not true that we're bored before God? We're bored. So many other things excite us. So many other things get us down on our knees. Hell should I? Let's get to verse 9. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. So remember, Abram's got this personal responsibility, this personal duty. God moves and works by grace, yes, but this never negates our personal responsibility. We must do what he expects us to do, duties, responsibilities. As for you, you must keep my covenant. Even though God knows he can't and won't, but the aim is that we do keep. And we're, as Abraham's descendants, we are to keep the covenant Grace is free as God pays the price, but for us the cost is high because it affects every part of our living. And look what it looks like. Verse 10, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every meal among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every meal was to receive a mark or a sign of the covenant. In this case, it was circumcision. It could have been something else, but that's what God decided. And so it was to be administered to all Abraham's people now, in that generation, and then from now on to all infants. Let's read it again. This is my, verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep every meal among you. Who shall, uh, you shall, who shall, sorry, every meal among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every meal among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, 
whether born in your household or bought with your money, you must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Now, notice that we word there in verse 11, sign, as a sign. What does a sign do? A sign always points to something far greater than itself. We've often talked about that. In this case, it points to a sign of spiritual reality. Because some people say, who basically ignore the Old Testament, and certainly this part of the Old Testament, they will say, circumcision in the Old Testament is about being a Jew. It's an ethnic marker for Jewish people. It's just for Jews. We can forget all about it. It's got no relevance for us, no spiritual relevance for us, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because you see, the physical act of circumcision was a sign of a circumcised heart. Because not everybody who received the the physical sign of circumcision had a circumcised heart, as we will see uh, later on. But here are just some of the verses that we could look to under numerous Leviticus 26 and 41. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sins, I will remember my covenant. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. There's so many verses we could look to. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Even when we come to the New Testament, it's, there's, there's similar things said. If you know the story of Acts 7, and Stephen gives us an extraordinary walk through the Old Testament as he takes us through biblical history, standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, this is what he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, a true Jew has circumcision of the heart, Paul tells us. See, it's a sign of something greater than the physical mark of being part of God's people. It was supposed to be a sign of the spiritual reality of a circumcised heart. The cutting away of the foreskin of the meal was meant to be a spiritual sign of the cutting away of the flesh of the heart. It pointed to, in a sense, rebirth, regeneration. Romans 4, for instance, also deals with the meaning of the sign, and you can read that at your leisure. But notice verse 12, back to Genesis 17. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Questions are often asked. Why is the sign given to eight-day-old infant boys? I mean, Abraham was the one who showed faith. You can understand why he was expected to, commanded to, to go through the rite of circumcision, to receive the mark of circumcision, but why little boys of eight days old? And why children from now on? Why? Did God make a mistake? I mean, did he get it right with Abraham and wrong with Abraham's children and all children thereafter? No. The reason why 
eight-day-old infant boys were included in the sign. It's simple. You see, God is also their God. God is also their God. Now, many people don't like that. But it's still true. As far as God is concerned, the people of faith include the children of the people of faith. Some people don't like that. But it's still true. Now, I don't want to get lost in the down the rabbit hole of baptism, but that's why we baptize not just believers, but their infants. The sign has changed, but the principle has not changed. Remember, it's an everlasting covenant. We're part of it. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. And so, we join in on the sign and give it to our infant children. Huh. But that asks uh, and, and, uh, leads to another interesting question. Why just sons? And, and why the eighth day? Well, sons and not daughters, I think is most likely an act of kindness and love. Female circumcision is something that's still practiced in many parts of the world. It is brutal. It is horrible. And the fact in in, I say, civilized parts of the world, it is, it is illegal. That's why we believe that the New Testament sign changes to baptism and incorporates both sons and daughters. But here, at this point, it's still eight-day-old sons. But I think there's an also a theological reason. The sin line always went down the male side in, in biblical and redemptive history. And so the boys were given the sign of the mark of the covenant. But why eight days old? Well, eight, you see, is the number of recreation. Creation occurred in seven days. Six days of work, one day of rest. So the eighth day is always seen in the Bible as the, the day of rebirth or recreation. How many people were there in their ark? Does anybody know how many people were in the ark when they experienced recreation? Guess? Eight. Eight. Jesus was resurrected on the Sabbath after the Sabbath. That's what actually the, the Greek says. And since the eighth day, as it were, and as a symbol of the new life and the new creation that that Jesus brings in salvation. That's why God does these things. There's thought in every little action and every part of the teaching. Verse 13, whether born in your household or bought with your money, um, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. You see, the covenant was never just a Jewish covenant. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 27, those who were bought as slaves or brought into the household as servants, foreigners were to, were to be brought in and could be brought in uh, to the covenant. Sadly, the Jews, of course, made it an exclusively Jewish rite and still do to this day. 
but others could enter and enjoy covenant blessing. Verse 14 basically says, to be an uncircumcised Jewish male was unthinkable. An uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You can see there's a play in words there. If you're not circumcised in the cutting of the flesh, then you'll be cut off from God's people. You've broken his covenant, he says. If you will not be cut, then you will be cut off. Now, of course, every Jew had to show faith, the circumcision of the heart. That is the Old Testament code for conversion. Abraham was converted. And we read about that earlier in our studies. But what we're seeing here is that faith can come before the sign, like in Abram's case, but faith can come after the sign, like his and our offspring. Some will be covenant keepers, and some will be covenant breakers. For example, can you think of anybody in Abraham's household who received the sign but was not of the elect and was a covenant breaker? Ishmael. Ishmael received the sign, we're told very clearly in verse 26. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that day, but he's not part of God's people. You see, they're covenant keepers and they're covenant breakers. Not everybody who receives the sign of baptism will be saved, but they're still to receive the sign. All of us must appropriate the realities of the covenant by faith. Circumcision didn't save. As we know, baptism doesn't save. Faith placed in the saving worth of God through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection is the only means of salvation. And so God is clearly stepping out his plan for us as his people. As for me, this is what I'm going to do. As for you, this is what I want you to do. But as for Sarai... Verses 15 and 16. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're to no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. I'm sure we know by now that um, names in the Bible are very important. They describe that person, but they also describe what God desires to do through that person. So Sarai means my princess, and Sarah means princess. So before her ministry was confined to one family, the family of Abram or Abraham, my princess, he would call her, but now she is just princess. Princess to many people, princess to multitudes, to nations, ultimately to the church of Jesus Christ. Many descendants would come from her. Countless families would come through her. Verse 16, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Oh, that word kings is very important there. 
And uh, it's up there. I'm giving you the clue about who that includes. Solomon, David, all the great kings, but ultimately the king of all kings, Jesus himself. The gospel promise here again, made to us and for us. But Sarah, princess, she's 90 years old. And we're going to think a bit more about what's involved in that next week as we go into chapter 18. But she's still much to do in her life. Now, I want you to think about it. We've mentioned it before. Let's think about it again. 90 years of age, and her greatest work was still ahead of her. Her greatest work was still ahead of her. Never assume the position, I can, or I will, or I want to retire from God's work. Never say, I have run the race, I have finished the race, others can work now, it's time to pass it on to those who are younger. The Bible often paints a picture that the greatest ministry undertaken by people were often in the final years of their lives. That encourages me greatly as I get older, let me tell you. Think of Moses. He was 80 before he started, really started. Caleb, old man too. Don't be inactive in God's work. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines. You can be old and still be useful. You can be old and you can minister. Now, a, a quick summary of the rest of the verse because time's marching, time's marching on. Abram's response or reaction is in verse 17 and 18. Abram fell face down. Once again, we see him do that. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. First of all, what does he do? He, he laughs. He laughs at God. <clears throat> We're going to see, by the way, that laughing is another little, um, is another wee, I suppose, a, a subplot in the chapters that lead ahead. Sarah's going to laugh next week. We're going to see that in chapter 18. Lot's sons-in-law, they laugh in chapter 19. Uh, those who hear of Isaac's birth, they laugh in chapter 21. And Isaac and Rebekah both laugh in chapter 24. There's a lot of laughing going on. Um, in the rest of, of these chapters, laughter of joy, um, wide-eyed amazement. We're not 100% sure. He's not really rebuked here, but on a human level, it seems absurd. I mean, how is this going to happen? And of course, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Humanly speaking, it can't happen. Is anything too difficult for God? We're going to see next week. That, no, not in this case. What seems absurd to us is to God, easy and natural. But notice the second response in verse 18. He offers plan B. Again, we can really miss this. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, God, <clears throat> I'm really going to try and help you out here because I don't think you're up to doing this by yourself. I'm going to offer you the one son I do have, a natural physical descendant. Could you not use Ishmael 
It's a simple solution. It's an easy answer. It's a kind of, um, it'll do rightly. He'll do rightly. It's kind of half-heartedness. The minimum. Sure, I've got one. Use him. And don't we often settle for the easy and for the adequate when he wants us to do the things that are generous and will provide abundance? You know, when we think about building our new hall, for instance, oh, sure, we've got one. Or we have to think about taking on an extra member of staff. Haven't we got enough? God will have none of it. Verse 19. Yes, but your servant Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. Which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. God gets specific. He gives the details, the nitty gritty. And he's basically saying, Abraham, I like my plan better than yours. As he always says to us, I am God. Abraham, you are not God. No discussion, no negotiation, not Ishmael, but Isaac, verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. But he goes on in verse 20 to say, yeah, okay, for Ishmael, I've heard you. There's going to be no plan B that's going to be unalterably and irreconcilably plan A, but, yeah, verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you, I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. And then gladly you'll be able to hear these words. And finally, well, actually it's not finally, there's a long conclusion. In verses 22 and 27, we have his obedience. As we've already noted, verse 23, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. That very day, when God makes his word and will known, it requires immediate obedience. Delayed obedience is no obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So notice immediately that day, it was painful, very uncomfortable, and it was complete. Everyone partook. But what does this mean for us as we conclude? Just four wee things before uh, we finish this evening. First of all, God demands obedience. Obedience to his will. Not my will, not our will, not what we think. No plan B. Not me focused. Humbly obey me, he says. Accept my will. Obey me and obey me now. Bow before me because I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai. He is indeed the sovereign God. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Are you obeying him? Or are you, <clears throat> have you in the recent past, or are you right now making 
a mess of things spiritually. And maybe you find yourself here tonight at your at the crossroads. What am I going to do? Am I going to walk with him? Or am I going to walk away from him? Are you fed up with failure? Are you tired of struggling? Are you feeling dirty inside because of the niggling guilt? I'm not obeying. Do you need to repent tonight? Do you want to repent tonight? Will you repent tonight? Bow down before the Lord. The second thing we might say, I think this passage teaches us, God blesses through families. Oh, we've lost this in this modern world in which we live in. Evangelicalism, and I would call myself an evangelical, but apparently the one of the things I have a major problem with in evangelicalism, it stresses the importance of the individual. And yes, the individual is important, but the Bible stresses the importance of the family over and over and over again. On the day of Pentecost, we often quote this. Peter said that the promise made to God's people on the birth of the church is for you and your children. Covenantal language. God created the family, and God blesses the family, and God uses the family. Your family and mine. Are you ready for that? Are you willing for that? Are you a glad participant in that? God blesses through families. That's what Genesis 17 tells us. God calls us to walk before him and believe us. We've touched on that many times tonight. Like a shepherd leading the sheep, like a father holding the child hand by hand, walking through life. And you know what Jesus says to you and me tonight? I made you, and I know you, and I love you. Walk with me. Just walk with me. And the fourth thing and the final thing is that God promises that you will be, that you will be my people, and I will be your God. There's echoes of this right throughout the Scriptures, Exodus 6, verse 7, Leviticus 26, 12, Jeremiah 24, 7, and the reason why we started with Revelation 21 is because of that great verse. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now the dwelling of God is with man, with men. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. A picture of the new heaven and the new earth. What started off in Genesis, running right through to the new heaven and the new earth, is that he will be our God, and we will be his people. And it's all because, it's all possible, it all happens because of the king promised by God through Abraham and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one promised to us in Genesis 17. And he's the one who makes us possible. So let's go in to this week and let's remember we are God's people and let's walk before him and let's be blameless.
Lord, thank you for this powerful word to us tonight in Genesis 17. May we know it in our hearts and in our lives, and may it shape the way we think about the world around us and about what your great plan of salvation. Bless us, we pray. Feed us and lead us, and may we indeed walk with you and be blameless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.